I think it's been good to be looking at Christ together over these last couple weeks as we're starting this summer series. I'm, I fully believe in the importance of and am unashamedly committed to the practice of teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God. And so our preaching and teaching plan is that the elders have, are routinely working on and, and, and planning out for the months and years ahead. It, it, it reflects that conviction. So we're in the Old Testament and New Testament and we're in law and prophets and wisdom literature and history and, and the Gospels and in New Testament epistles. And so we, 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 we see the value of all of the scriptures. But I will say I've never enjoyed studying and preaching uh, more than when I am preaching through gospel accounts. And so I've preached through Matthew and John uh, at Baraka over the years. And, but just beholding our Lord and Savior together week after week, is, it's, just, it's my favorite place to be. And so he is, he is um, again, just so powerful and so kind. Uh, he is, or the holy, 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 to quote a different hymn, he is perfect in power and in love and in purity, and, and I'm thankful we get to, to see him this summer. So we're moving through Luke's gospel account. We're, we're pausing at some of the meals that Jesus is eating with, with people, and so there's a lot of eating, as we've seen and we'll see in, in the gospel of Luke. And even when he's not eating a meal or having a meal, he's often using food to illustrate the truth that he's teaching. We're not going to even spend our time dealing with that, but, but that's, that's what we find in, in Luke. And so we've already seen Jesus feast in the home of Levi, the, this, this right after the Lord calls him to himself and transforms this social, religious outcast, this tax collector, just the lowest of the low in that society. And, and the Lord calls him to himself. And so there's this feast that Matthew throws for Jesus and this kind of strange and awkward guest list. And so you have, you have other fellow tax collectors and you have just notorious sinners. And then you have these the, the ultra-religious fundamentalist Pharisees at the, around this table. And so there's this surprising, spreading, disturbing grace that we see at that meal. We, we've already seen that last week. Uh, uh, Pastor Flintoff, Eric walked us through uh, the, the meal with the Pharisee's house where this, this, this woman, this again notoriously sinful woman comes in, bursts in the door, weeps over Jesus' feet, wipes them with her hair and, and anoints them with oil. And so and Jesus tells us what's behind this lavish expression of worship of Jesus there. And it's this, is that her sins have been forgiven. And this is all taking place to the absolute horror of the Pharisees that are present. And, and, and so we saw this, what Eric called this, this gross story. And particularly the gross compassion of Christ. And so in Luke, though, the, these meals, they're giving us a glimpse of, into the gracious heart of our Savior. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing more clearly who He is as He takes these opportunities to minister grace to, to people who are weary and brokenhearted and hurting. And he's, and, he's, and he's at the same time often graciously exposing the self-righteous. Both of those are acts of His mercy and grace. So today we come to one of the most famous meals in Scripture, the feeding of the 5,000. It's recorded in all four gospel accounts, and here it's in Luke chapter 9. And so I know when we come to a passage like this that we've probably heard, if you've been a believer for many years, you've probably heard dozens of sermons on the feeding of the 5,000. You're very familiar with this. So we kind of have to dust our minds off the, uh, of the familiarity of this passage. And so kind of get out of our heads. If you grew up in Sunday school, the little flannel graph uh, images and the cartoonish coloring pages that you've, you've colored about this event. Because it's not fiction. This is real. Uh, it's, it's incredible, but it's history. And so just keep that in mind as you read it. So just look at chapter 9. If you've got your Bible open there, chapter 9, there is a lot going on in Luke 9. This is a jam-packed chapter. Just kind of scan. Go back to the beginning and scan. So the 12 are sent out on this mission trip, preaching and healing everywhere they go. We have some words about Herod. Then, then we have the feeding of the 5,000. Then we have Peter's confession of Christ. We have Jesus twice in this chapter telling his disciples that he has to suffer and die and be crucified. He's kind of breaking this news to them. He, he's explaining that the life of, of discipleship is a cross-bearing life and maybe death. There's the transfiguration in this chapter. 
There are all kinds of healings. There, there's an argument. This is where we have that argument among the disciples among, about who's the greatest, or one of the arguments, where they're arguing with one another about who's the greatest, and there's more. And so this is, there's a lot happening here. Uh, and, and I want you to see, these aren't just random happenings or random teachings. This is, this is a time in Jesus' earthly ministry where he's really focusing on training the twelve. Those closest group of disciples. And so in this scene, we're about a year from Jesus' death on the cross. And so the twelve have some things they have to learn in order to do what they must do. So he's preparing them. He's very intentional about this. Because they're not there yet. They're not ready. And so the, all the episodes in this section, they're, 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 they're pointed in, in, towards their training. And they're really driving to them to this one critical question that, that Jesus asked of his disciples. And the, it's the crux of the section. You see it in verse 20. And we'll read it in a moment. But they, it's this. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It will, it will be their understanding of, it will be their confidence in, in who Jesus is. It's going to fuel their lives and ministries moving forward. And I'll just say it's the same for us. And this is why we're spending all this time looking at this together. It's our understanding of who Christ is and our confidence in who Jesus is that, that's, that has to fuel our lives, has to fuel our ministry together as a church. This is what's got to compel us. And so look with me. Let's start reading in verse 7. Luke chapter 9, verse 7. And you see how this, this famous meal is bracketed by, by some comments. And so verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So Herod asked, who is this guy? It's Jesus. Verse 10, on the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we, go, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Father, would you now again minister to us, speak to us, Lord, through your word. We beg you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's so much of what we learn in life, we learn um, through nonverbal lessons. Uh, I would say probably most of what we know, and that can be the good and the bad things we know, we, we just kind of pick up from observing and watching and, and, and just exposure. And so it's not generally from a classroom or this direct instruction. It's, it's through watching. So there are... There are there are many nonverbal lessons that I have learned from you, from many of you. And, um, and I, I think that we can, it's mostly good. Um, no, I won't comment on the bad one. I'll just give you an example. If I could sling some encouragement, I don't even know if I said, yeah, Miss Jody, so you're sitting right there in the middle, so I'm going to embarrass you a little bit. But I, this is one of the things that I, I, I've noted just recently, uh, and I have observed and noticed her gracious and kind interactions 
with all of us, but particularly with people who used to be part of our church. And, and I would just say, as a pastor, it always hurts when people, I mean, it hurts when people move. I mean, they just move across country and you miss people and we're family and people leave and they're, they're, sometimes there's more painful departures than others. And I have observed in, in being in the same place with her, um, her graciousness and kindness to people who used to be part of our church. And I see it in the comments on social media and those kinds of things. And, I, and it's something that's, that's really honestly stood out. She's never once sat me down. She's hearing this for the first time. She's never sat me down and given me a lecture on the importance of being kind and gracious to people, um, uh, loving people well who've left, who maybe left because, and, and, it, and, it, and it hurt, or maybe left because there was a real disagreement, or maybe left because um, for less than adequate reasons. She never lectured me on that, but I've learned from watching and observing, and I'm grateful for that. I think we all have had those, those opportunities. And so Jesus, he, he's training the 12 here, but he's not you know, standing behind a lectern and you know, looking at slides on a screen or like anything like that. He is, he is showing them. He's living, and he's serving, and he's loving, and he's teaching right in front of them. And there are all kinds of lessons. This is part of their training, but it's, it's in a way that's different than maybe you and I tend to think of training. And so there are some big lessons that they need to learn, big lessons we need to learn, brothers and sisters. And, and they primarily have to do with compassion and power. Compassion and power. And so the 12 needed to go forth. Here's our two points this morning. Simply this. These are the lessons they needed to learn that we need to learn. If we're going to go out with lives that are just gripped by the Great Commission, what do we need? We need, to, we need to have a heart for the hurting. That's the first lesson, a heart for the hurting. And this is what Jesus certainly demonstrated. And secondly, we need to have a can't-do attitude. That's very uh, countercultural for us, a can't-do attitude. And I'll clarify that later, what I mean. But just hold on to that now. So first thing, first lesson here that Jesus kind of gives us here non-verbally is his heart for the hurting. And I don't just mean warm fuzzies for certain people that are needy and when our hearts are kind of drawn to them and with, 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 with kind of feelings. I mean deep, gut-level sympathy, and, and the deepest part of our being that moves us to respond to needs and to help. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what Jesus demonstrated. So just consider the context here. For the, fa- for the past 24 months, Jesus has been involved in near nonstop ministry in that area around Galilee. This is where he spent these first two years of his life primarily. He's logged hundreds of probably thousands of miles on foot in that hilly terrain in that region. And in all the time that he's traveled, he's hardly ever been alone. He, he is used, he's grown used to these massive crowds following him everywhere he goes, demanding his time and attention. The thrill seekers, the curious, the, the, the homeless, the sick, the outcast, the political opportunist, and occasionally the true disciple. So, but our Lord, he's constantly surrounded by this desperate mob of people. He's also been preaching nonstop with little to nothing to show for it. He, now, I can testify that preaching depletes a person physically and in other ways. And so especially, though, when it falls on deaf ears and hard hearts. Not like here, you know, never. Um, but, but the vast majority of, of Jesus' audience, this gives some encouragement to a preacher, they didn't get it. He's the master preacher. They didn't, they didn't get it. They completely misunderstood him, completely misunderstood his message, what he was about. Most people just kind of endured his preaching so they could get on to the healing. He knew that. And for also, for almost the two entire years that he's doing this preaching and healing, and, and he's being stalked by this miracle-crazed mob that's just wanting the spectacular from him, he's also being shadowed by these religious predators. These, these, the, the religious elite in Israel, they're sent from Jerusalem for the sole purpose of making his life miserable. They're stalking him everywhere he goes. At every turn, they try to discredit him, destroy him. They slander him, accuse him. They attack him indirectly by trying to, to turn the crowds against him. Eventually, it's these same self-righteous pit bulls that, that are going to be the ones that are pulling out his beard, spitting on his face at the end of his life. And they're stalking him during these two years. 
His living conditions have also been difficult. When he's not, when he's not at Peter's home in Capernaum, he slept outside on the hard ground in the desert. Son of man has no place to lay his head. He's had very little rest. He's eaten well at times, as we're seeing in the, some of these meals, but at other times he's gone hungry. His family thinks he's crazy. His hometown ran him off twice. His closest companions, the disciples, are not the easiest people to live with. The, the twelve only seem to have a slightly better grasp of spiritual things than the fickle crowds. Uh, the, the longer he's with them, the more apprehensive and confused they seem to be about what his actual mission is. And on top of all of this, and more difficult than any other of those factors that he's been dealing with, there's just this ever-present re, ever reality of the passion. That, that Jesus knows that the, the cross is weighing heavy on his heart as he goes. He knows that every step he takes is one step closer than the, to the agony of, of Calvary. And so two times in this chapter, he's looking eyeball to eyeball with his disciples. He's telling them exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, and I'll rise again. But they just don't get it. They start arguing again about who's the greatest in the kingdom. They don't get it. And so in verse 51 of chapter 9 here, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is, this is a pivotal chapter in the Gospel of Luke. It's from verse 51 on that he is, he is lasered in on the cross. But even now, even over these 24 months, this is what's in his view. And so if this weren't enough to wear a person out physically and spiritually and mentally, and remember, Jesus is fully man. He's, he gets depleted. And so, but it's at this very moment when you put the gospel accounts together, that Jesus receives this crushing news that one of his dearest friends and fellow servants, his cousin John, John the Baptist, we know him, has been brutally murdered by this paranoid wannabe King Herod. And Jesus knows that means his life is next. And so in fact, he, verse 7 to 9 there, he's, Herod's inquiring about Jesus. Jesus, who's just murdered Herod, uh, 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 Herod, who's just murdered John, now he's asking about Jesus. So I say all of that as background because when we find Jesus and the disciples in Luke 9, they are completely wiped out. And we, we get this from kind of putting the parallels together. They've just finished, we see this in Luke 9, they've just finished one of the most ambitious ministry campaigns of their entire ministry. The 12 sent out in pairs all over that region, They've just, they've, so they're preaching and teaching. They've just finished up this exhausting short-term mission trip. And, and with two years of relentless, grueling ministry bearing down on him with overwhelming fatigue settled in on Jesus, he takes the 12, gets into this little fishing boat, and pushes off from the shore in search of some much-needed and much-deserved R&R. And so we, we, in Mark chapter 6, we see this, Mark 6, 31, the parallel. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. That's why they were going, to rest. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So away from the crowds, find this nice peaceful spot where they can pray, they can consider all that's been happening and all that's coming in the next 12 months, where Jesus, again, can take these critical moments to, to break the news to the disciples about his crucifixion, and they're, again, they're oblivious at this time. And so look, with that in mind, look at verse 10 again, Luke chapter 9. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So Bethsaida is this little remote fishing village kind of on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. But word got out. <laughs> word got out. Verse 11. The crowds learned it. They got, they got intel where he was going. And they followed him. So, so kind of the picture probably is as the shore is kind of the, the, the boat is going up the shoreline and the disciples are no doubt sleeping on the bottom of that boat and maybe Jesus is too. And, but the crowds, they're following along on the shoreline. So as the boat's going Kind of, they would stick close to the shore, and so the crowd's just walking on the shoreline, following the boat up there. And, and so as the crowds go through the villages around the Sea of Galilee, they start talking about uh, 
why they're there and where they're going and who this Jesus is. And so other people join in and, and other people who are sick and other people who are uh, looking for help. And, and so the crowd just grows as it moves, a snowball effect as, as this crowd journeys up following Jesus on the shore. It's also Passover. And so you have all of these Jewish pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so as these pilgrims are going south to Jerusalem, these crowds, excited crowds are going the, the wrong way, going the other direction. And everybody's, what are you doing? Where are you going? And so they're telling them what's happening. And so others probably are joining in because of that. So there's this, there's this, this is just some of what's behind the, the, the size of this crowd that, that assembles in this very remote area. There's no other explanation. So Matthew says, in, in Matthew's parallel of chapter 14, he says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. They're already there. He went searching for solitude and rest, but instead he found another large crowd. You can imagine the disciples' reaction when they saw that crowd. What in the world? Get back in the boat. Let's get out of here. Let's push away. No, we need rest. We can't do this. You've got to be kidding. Give us a break. So get that emotion. Get that feeling in your mind. Then read what Luke says in verse 11. What does it say? He welcomed them. He welcomed them. And spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And cured those who had need of healing. Matthew says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Mark says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They, would, they had been so marginalized, so pushed aside, so ostracized by their community and by their religion because of the ailments that they had and because of the infirmities that they had. They had no priests, they had no prophets, they had no leaders that were caring for their souls and their bodies. They weren't teaching them, they weren't, they weren't healing them. Now listen, this, this crowd that, that comes, this, I've kind of indicated this already, but this crowd that comes, this crowd that eventually eats in this meal... It's not just ordinary folks. This massive crowd is full of sick people, diseased people, deformed people. These are lepers that are groaning with every step to, to make this journey by foot out to this remote place in pain. These are moms and dads carrying paralyzed children. These are people leading deaf and blind and, and demon-possessed friends and family members out there to meet this man of great power and compassion that they've heard about. The crowd, and the crowd grows as the day goes on. The people just keep streaming in. You can imagine that those that were the sickest and the most crippled, they, they would be slower getting out there. And so people, but, but they're going to get there. Because Jesus had developed this reputation as, as, as being one who was so unlike anybody else in the religious establishment of the day. People knew that he helped all who came to him. They had never been treated like this before. They had never, never seen grace like this. They had never been loved, known love like this. And this healing service, it went on all day until the third hour of the day, about 3 p.m. We assume he got there early in the day. There were probably 10 to 20,000 people who showed up as the day went on. 5,000. It's 5,000 men, and the other gospel accounts say, plus women and children. And so if you've been to the State Farm Arena where the Atlanta Hawks play, um, and in playoffs right now, it's very exciting. But this would be a sellout crowd at State Farm Arena. I think it's 22,000 people in there. And again, most in this massive crowd, when they finally sit down and eat, they're people who've just been healed or who have a family member or friend who's just been healed by Jesus. And so you can imagine paralytics that are walking now for the first time perhaps, lepers who have been cleansed and their skin is restored, blind people seeing, deaf people hearing. That's it. This is what a feast. What power. What compassion. And so at one of the most, this is what I want you to see first, this first lesson that, that the disciples are intended to get, that we're supposed to get, is, 
is, is at one of the most exhausting moments in Jesus' life. Our Lord is moved more by the needs of others than his own. This is the pattern of his life, this unrelenting compassion for people in need. That's the first lesson for the disciples, for us. It's seeing Jesus' heart for the hurting. The compassion that we see here is one that we can hardly comprehend. We need Jesus' heart for the hurting if we're going to possibly carry on his, his mandate to make disciples of all nations. When you just study the life of Jesus, you study the time he spent serving and all the miles he logged, walking around and ministering and preaching, all the people he touched and all the people he served that everybody else had written off. And then you think about your life. I think about my life this last week. His compassion is just mind-boggling. And he was compassionate to the end. Even on the cross, he's praying a prayer of forgiveness for those who demanded his death. Nailed him on that tree. So when the disciples see this scene, they learn something, something of it. They don't get it all, but they're, they're beginning to see something and take note. They, they will need this compassionate heart of Christ for the hurting. Because not long from now, after Jesus' resurrection, after the Spirit descends on the disciples, there would be thousands of desperate people around them hanging on every word they spoke. They would need this heart of Christ for the hurting. But think about your life. Think about when you're most exhausted, most tired, most frustrated and, and discouraged and fatigued, and there's a need presented to you. The only thing you can do to get up off the couch, the only thing that will get you off the couch is the spirit, spirit-filled, Christ-like compassion and care for the needs of others. When was the last time you served in someone in such a great way that, that you were willing to inconvenience your life and your schedule so that their need was met? Why? Because their need is the most important need on the planet? No. That doesn't, have, that doesn't really matter. But because you were so moved by compassion and saw an opportunity to point people to a compassionate Christ, do you inconvenience your life to meet the inconvenient needs of other people? This is what Jesus did. This is his whole life in his incarnation. This is his condescension. It's basically one big, interrupting, inconvenient phone call at the most inopportune time of day because someone has a need that's absolutely pressing and, and, and can't go unmet. That's, that's his life. Think about it. Jesus did this too, knowing that many of these same people would within a year be cursing him and demanding for his execution. He served his future killers. What grace. What a heart for the hurting. May the Lord be pleased to root out the, the self-righteousness and just the selfishness and the cynicism that we often have towards hurting people. And, and many who are hurting and don't deserve help, do we any of us? May he give us a heart of compassion, move with compassion for others. And, and that happens as we remember the compassion of the Lord towards us in our undeserving condition. So that's the first lesson. We, we, need, we need to learn this lesson in order to do what we need to do. We need a heart for the hurting. And the second lesson is we haven't got to the meal yet. All right, we're going we're gonna to have to hit the gas. We need to learn, we need to have a can't-do attitude. And what I mean is a can't-do-without-Jesus attitude. That's what I'm talking about. We can't do it without him. And so that we need to get really, really comfortable and really, really at home with, with our, our inability and Jesus' superability and all-sufficiency. That's what we see in this meal. And so here's the scene. You have all this excitement going on. You have people streaming into this grassy plain in this remote village 
from all around that area, sick and diseased and lame people coming and being healed by Jesus. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God to these people. You have these crowds that are, are milling around and, and interacting and people celebrating and some just waiting with anticipation of, of being near Jesus to be healed of this disease they've maybe lived with their whole life. So it's just like concert-like atmosphere. It's, 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 it's exciting. People are restored and ecstatic. They don't want to leave. Would you? I mean, this is amazing what's happening here. So when all all this is going on, we learn from John's parallel account in John chapter 6 that Jesus is the one who starts this whole dialogue about food. And so he leans over to Philip and says, any idea how we're going to feed all these people? And and Philip just sits there. Wheels start turning, and and the lesson begins. And so in John chapter 6, verse 6, the text says, this Jesus was saying to test him, to train him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus knows what's happening. He knows what he's, he's leading them. He knows how he's training him, them there. It's all this big setup by Christ to put his glory, his power, his compassion on display to teach the disciples. It's this massive field exercise for the disciples. It's a massive demonstration of compassion and help for the hurting, but he's also training the 12 here. And so Jesus just drops this logistical nightmare in Philip's lap. Heartburn setting in. Ooh, I can just imagine. That's how it would show up for me first. High blood pressure. You know, blood pressure is getting, getting raising and your rapid heart rate, all those things. So most of the people out there, they would have dropped everything and, and just left everything to, to go and, and, and get close to Jesus and get to near him. And so they had no, made no provision for what they would need to eat. Nothing like that. They had no packed lunch. And, and first century moms didn't have, you know, large purses with fruit strips and granola bars and goldfish crackers and all that stuff like, uh, like many of you do today. So, so there's this enormous dilemma. Just consider this. I know we're so familiar with this, but just think about this. The, the number of disciples is an issue. Twelve. The, the size of the crowd is a major issue. <coughs> Let's just say 15,000. And growing. Kara... Can you bring Daddy that water bottle real quick? Thank you. <coughs> I can see this isn't in the change. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Get your shoes on first, huh? Thank you. <laughs> Make yourself comfortable, girl. Thank you, sweetie. <coughs> so the number of disciples, size of the crowd, time's an issue. It's getting late. It's afternoon, sun's getting lower. Location's an issue. They're practically in the middle of nowhere. There's no Costco around the corner. There's no Chick-fil-A where you can go get a bunch of nugget trays or something like that. Uh, money's an issue. They don't have near enough. Even if, the, even if there was enough food nearby in the local villages, which it wouldn't be, uh, they can't afford to buy everyone a meal. And so Philip's response, we find this in John chapter 6, verse 7. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread bread is not sufficient for them for even everyone to get a little bit <coughs> excuse me and so a denarius was about a, a day it was a day's wage and so it's about seven to eight months wages that that's not going to scratch the surface of this need this isn't going to be enough and and so they, 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 they're basically saying we can't do it we can't do it and that's the exact answer jesus is looking for He's looking for the, we can't. It's impossible. It's not possible. So Jesus wanted that sense of self-sufficiency to be rooted out and replaced with this humble and faith-filled desperation. We can't do it. I can't. That's not a popular expression in our day, is it? I can't. We, we have self-esteem. We, we can do it. If there's a will, there's a way. This is very popular and has been for some time. Uh, you know, even in religiously, we put religious language, God helps those who help themselves. And, and so we, we, we think like that. But that's, Jesus rooting that out. He's getting them to say, we can't. So in the meantime, you put the parallel accounts together. It goes something like this. And so Jesus asks the question to Philip. Philip deliberates and then comes back and answers Jesus. And so then Jesus doesn't do, any, do anything. He just goes right on healing and keeps on healing and teaching. And he leaves the 12 to kind of sit there, ponder this. Crunch the numbers. Formulate a plan. What are we going to do? 
So the disciples come back with what they conceive as the only reasonable solution to the dilemma. And it's basically this. Lord, we've thought about it. People are just going to have to fend for themselves. I mean, you just leave 12 guys to plan a big meal. And this is the kind of stuff. Just, just get takeout. I don't know. Just send them away. They'll, they'll be fine. Um, so you pick it up. Verse 12, chapter 9. Now the day began to wear away. And the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Basically, they're saying, it's impossible. Jesus, the numbers just don't work. Um, there, there's no way, humanly speaking, to feed this many people in this remote of an area uh, in this, with this short notice with these limited resources. Uh, just, just, it just can't happen. And, and, and so Jesus has them right where he wants them. Sort of, but I think there's almost a, a, you can almost detect a hint of confidence in the, in the disciples' answer to Jesus, can't you? It's like, we had a problem, we're offering a solution. It's not great, but it, it'll work. And, and, and so uh, it's as good as we can do in the circumstances. So they, they basically solve the problem by getting rid of the problem and just, just shutting down the healing service and the teaching service and sending the people away. And they might have expected Jesus to kind of give them a good attaboy and pat on the back and good job, you, you, you figured this out. He's going to be so proud of us. And this is, they must have been so stunned by Jesus' response to them. What does he say in verse 13? But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. Is he, was he not listening? Does he, does he not see what's going on here? But he said, don't you dare send them away. Feed them. They're probably looking around for like some secret stash of food. Like maybe he's got like a food truck back there behind the bushes and we didn't know about it. And ah, now I see what you're doing, Jesus. So what are you talking about? But the whole point is this. <clears throat> There's something they have not taken into consideration. They haven't. They hadn't considered the extraordinary power of Jesus. They are not able to do this. But Jesus is. And so given all they had seen over the past 24 months, walking and living so close to Jesus, all the miracles, all the healings, they hadn't begun to really grasp the, the extraordinary power and, 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 and all-sufficiency of who Jesus is. <coughs> and so his, his power is more than they can imagine. This is why it never occurred to them that he could feed this crowd. So he's basically saying to them, you think about everything you've seen, Think about me. They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. That's Jesus just pushing their faith out to its limits. Beyond any level of trust that they've experienced up to this point. So look at verse 13 again. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. Basically, they're saying, we'll feed them, but it's going to be a short meal with these little seven scraps of food. I mean, there's going to be a large mob of very hangry people here. And it's going to be embarrassing. This is not going to look good for you, Jesus. This is going to be a PR nightmare. They're going to be posting, it's going to go viral on social media, this disaster out in the hills of Bethsaida. And so for Mark, we find Jesus sends them out to go see how much food there is. And so they do that. They come back with these five barley loaves and two small fish. And John, from John's account, you remember, we know this was, was basically a boy's sack lunch, his lunchable. And so his mommy packed him a lunch that day. And this is, this is all they could come back with. And so John 6, 9, the disciples ask, what are these for so many people? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is, it's laughable how little food there is. That's what they're saying. I mean, again, just picture State Farm Arena, uh, just packed with people. And in center court, there's a little napkin with these two little fish. I mean, don't think fish. These are like probably two to three inches long, little pickled fish. And just little, maybe hamburger bun size, small pancake, little barley loaves, not loaves of bread. These are just little bitty things. What is that? So, how much money? Not enough. Nearest town? Too far. What time is it? It's late. Send them away? No, feed them. Okay, we will, but this is all we got. It's a little sack lunch. This is exactly, exactly where they needed to be to see Jesus for who he is. They're, they're, they're getting a heaping dose of their inability. We can't do it. It's impossible. 
and, and, and yet they're developing this healthy, can't-do attitude that, that they desperately need, that we desperately need. So I picture the 12 sitting, kind of standing around in a circle here, and Jesus is sitting there in front of them, and maybe there's a rock, and Jesus lays this, this two little fish, these little scraps of food out on this rock, and over the disciples' shoulder you see this enormous crowd of people, 20,000 people behind them, hungry people, late in the day, and, and these just little dinky little fish and rolls. And, and they're just, what, what do we do? This isn't impossible. But then Jesus takes charge. That's what happens in the story. You see this. And so he, the disciples have given up. They understand we can't do this. It's impossible. And then Jesus just basically says, watch and learn, boys. Watch me. And so he said to his disciples, verse 14, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. I mean, the actual miracle is, is told in a very understated way, isn't it? It's just a, in a few sentences here, this, this, this is summed up. But he, he, ha, he has the crowd sit down in these groups of about 50 now, why is that? I mean, in part, I think it's probably organization. I mean, just that's, a, that's an enormous crowd to, to try to manage. Um, but I also, he, the word he's saying, they had them sit down. The word is to recline. And, and so, I know we don't think like this. We, maybe we picture just kind of a casual picnic and just kind of sitting, you know, crisscross applesauce or just, you know, however. But when you recline for a meal, it's, it's saying this is something formal. There's a feast with a host. That's, as we've seen this in these other meals that we've looked at. The Pharisees hosting this meal. Levi, the tax clerk, hosting this meal. The reclining at table. It's official. There's something about that. But I, I th- because of that, I think there's some shock effect for the disciples because they're saying, oh no. These people know that they're, they're expecting a meal. They're expecting food in front of them. They're, they know they're sitting down to eat when they're asked to, to recline. And so they're, they're, this is like we're past the point of no return. And then also with the crowd sitting down, they're going to be able to see where this food's coming from. Jesus is going to be on display in these kind of sloping, grassy areas. They're going to be able to see Christ, that this is a miracle that he is performing. And so this crowd, they, they, they sit down and, 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 and they're fed. Not just a little bit. They're fed so much that their stomachs are filled. They're satisfied. That's the word. They had full bellies, food babies. Uh, they, 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 these people, they, they would have probably never eaten food in this amount, in this quantity in their life. Most of the time, they, they were used to going to bed still hungry, eating a meal and still being hungry because there wasn't enough to eat. They worked hard just to survive on the most minimal diet, these, particularly these people that many of them have been lame and, and, and pushed aside to the margins of society. But this was a feast. That was just barley loaves and fish, but they, they had it in, in unending supply. They ate, they got seconds, they, they ate more, and there were still leftovers. This is enormous. So from Mark, we learn that Jesus was, Jesus was the one multiplying the food. And so in other words, it wasn't that Jesus just kind of like touched the baskets and, and they suddenly became magical baskets. And every time the disciples went in and grabbed a, you know, another fish, then more came out and they just never emptied. And the like, well, it was just this, that's kind of the picture that I always had growing up. That's not the case. It seems that, that, that it's Jesus multiplying the bread and fish over and over again. That the, the disciples would go away and, and empty their baskets, feeding these hungry crowds. And then they would come back to Jesus for more. And so you can imagine, how long would it take to feed 15, 20,000 people with 12 disciples, these groups of 50? It would have taken hours, two to three hours probably. These disciples are winding their way through the crowd, going back to Jesus, receiving miraculous food directly from him for these hungry, hurting people, and then going back out again. And so, and the people can see what's happening. They're asking the 12, no doubt, who is this man? What is this power? I mean, the disciples, they, they hear the murmuring, they hear the speculating. Is he a prophet? Is he Elijah? Is he John the Baptist? I mean, because this is what we find in the, in the debriefing that Jesus has at the end of this, after this scene. He's asking, who do the people say that I am? Well, I think they got a lot of their polling data from right here. As they're going in and out of these crowds and they're hearing these comments and hearing the speculation. And so, what a lesson, though. 
What a lesson for the disciples. What a lesson for us. Jesus' power is greater than they have ever imagined. They had seen lots of miracles before, never anything like this. In the face of impossible circumstances, Jesus displays this incredible power to overcome. Listen, whatever your thoughts are of Jesus' power, they're not great enough. Whatever your thoughts are of his grace and of just who he is as a person, we've only begun to scratch the surface of, of who Christ and all of his glory truly is. That's true for every one of us. His glory, his splendor, his power, his compassion, his grace is beyond our comprehension. And so the disciples, they're, they're walking around for hours with these full baskets and empty baskets, and they're realizing again and again, we can't, we couldn't, we couldn't do it. But Jesus can, and he, he, he is more than able. Their, their awareness of, of their ineptitude, their impotence, and Jesus' power and his willingness is going to be crucial for the rest of their lives and the rest of their ministries and all that the Lord has for them. They, they, when you get to the book of Acts, when you see the story of the disciples going out and preaching and teaching and healing, you do not get the picture of self-confident men that are going out with this, you know, pounding their chest. We can do it. We can do it. We got this. That's not how they go out. They're going out as humble, happily helpless people in themselves, but trusting boldly in the power of God to work. They're going out and they're preaching Jesus Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You look at their preaching, you look at their ministry, it's constantly pointing to Christ, constantly depending upon him, constantly seeking his power. It's this can't do attitude, can't do without Jesus attitude. And listen, Jesus gave them, he's given us this impossible task, hasn't he? Call it the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. We can't do it, brothers and sisters. It is too much we don't have what it takes. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But Jesus is able. He is able. Can you reach your neighborhood with the gospel? Not, not on your own. Can you pluck up the courage to tell your friends about Jesus? Can we start new churches in this area and see, see more churches established here and around the world? Can we feed 20,000 people with seven scraps of food? Listen, the message is not be like Jesus and, and make it happen. Just, just do it. That's not it. When it comes right down to it, again, we can't. The disciples couldn't provide for those hungry and hurting people's needs. We have the power of Jesus, but listen, it's his power. We have the ministry of Jesus entrusted to us, but it's his ministry. So we, we've got to walk out with this dependence. One, let me just give you a quote from an, another writer it, kind of thinking about the application of this passage. He says, it's easy for us to play at being Messiah. Do we all find that tendency? We, we, we play at being Messiah. We want to help, and it's right that we do show love, but we need to be careful not to think that we can solve people's problems for them. It's not good for us. If we try to save the world, we'll quickly burn out, and it's not good for the people we help People don't need to be made reliant on us. Reliance on us might feed our egos, but it doesn't bring lasting change. But even more importantly, Christ is the Savior, not us. Our role is to point to Him. We have a responsibility to welcome people to the Messianic banquet, but we can't bring them in. And we offer people, what we offer people is Jesus. His death is sufficient and complete. He is the provider. He is the host, not us. And this is what we need. We need this heart for the hurting, and we need this can't-do-without-Jesus attitude as we live and as we minister together as a church. Well, as astounding as this miracle is, it's really secondary to the real purpose of it, uh, as, we, as we've already seen. But the miracle of the feeding of this massive crowd, it's pointing to something even greater. There's something greater than 20,000 people being fed uh, with just starting with five loaves and two fish. And, and you get a hint of this, and you look back at verse 16. How is this described? And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the crowd. Does that wording sound familiar to you? Well, you it should. We hear this a lot. 
Um, every time we take the Lord's table, we see the same words in the same order. In Luke, Luke chapter 22, verse 19, which we quote often, and he, Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Taking, thanking, breaking, giving, same words, same order. Luke is not, make, that's not accidental. He's intentionally making a connection. He, he gets to that question, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Messiah of God. And Jesus is a Messiah who provides this feast for his people. And ultimately, he provides this messianic feast by what? By dying. And he welcomes us to this feast, what? Because he was abandoned for us. As soon as Peter makes this confession after this miraculous meal, Jesus explains that he's going to have to suffer and he's going to die. He's the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah people expect. He didn't come in his first coming to, to conquer Rome and to free Jerusalem, to liberate Jerusalem. There was judgment for sure, but it was, it was God's judgment for our sin that would fall on him. And he was judged in our place that we could escape God's judgment and be welcomed to God's great feast, eternal feast. And so eight days after Jesus warns of his suffering and death, he, he's transfigured before him. You remember this account, and, and this voice of his father speaks from heaven, and what does the father say? We might expect him to say, this is my son, gaze upon him. What does he say? This is my son, listen to him. Listen to him. What has Jesus been saying in context? He's saying he's the Christ who's going to be crucified and will rise again. Listen to him. And in verse 51, the story heads off in a new direction, literally. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing Jesus as this compassionate one heart for the hurting and we we who were hurting we who were desperate we who were without hope without help without God in this world you came to us in your mercy God give us that heart give us your heart Lord for those hurting around us and help us as we as we live as we move out in ministry in our church and in our community and around the world father to not do so with a with a, we, can, we can do this, but understanding the enormity of the task is more than we could possibly handle. And yet, apart from, and that apart from you, we can do nothing. And yet, you are able, Lord. And so, help us to, 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 to continually go back and to Jesus, to you again and again and again, finding the provision that we need. And help us to always be pointing people over and over and again to Jesus. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take water of life without price. And so we, we come to you, Jesus, the living fountain. And, and we find all that we need. And we, and we point others to the, to the only one that can provide all that they need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.